like many great theologians of our times, I grew up with The Simpsons. When I was eight, I saw them when they first appeared as crude, crude interludes on the Tracy Ullman show. When I was 10, I watched them the night of their independent debut, a Christmas special in which the family acquired their beloved dog, Santa's little helper. I witnessed the show's growth from obscurity to ubiquity. When I was in sixth grade, Bart Simpson was everywhere. From t-shirts stating, don't have a cow man, to Butterfinger candy wrappers. Despite that commercial success, the show developed from preteen fad into proper social commentary and political satire. The Simpsons seemed to encapsulate American identity while also poking lots of fun at it. The religious commentary remains telling of American theology. Occasionally, Homer has a dream or a vision in which he interacts with God. Despite Homer's alcoholism, laziness, selfishness, rejection of organized religion, Homer and God seem relaxed and familiar with one another. They're old friends. In those interactions, we usually only see God's like giant feet and sandals, maybe a hand you know, behind Homer there. But the depiction of heaven is a place in the clouds. Everyone from Michelangelo to Hendrix is there lounging around, taking it easy. In one episode, Homer is raptured and he checks into heaven like it's a spa. St. <laughs> Peter is a trim German hipster with like miniature little wings. And he, and he shows Homer around and checks him in and shows him the TV and tells Homer the best part of heaven is that anything you wish for, you get lickety split. You can imagine what Homer does with this. In today's gospel, Jesus erases those notions of heaven that are so pervasive in our culture and reorients us to what we call the God love life. He does this through a series of parables, stories. These stories negate concepts of heaven as a place or a condition awaiting us after death. Rather, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven by its character, a way of being here and now. It has nothing to do with righteous purity or the afterlife. These parables are not at all what we learned in Sunday school. They are not those typical gentle morals that we knew. According to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is defined by crafty and imprudent behavior. It is sneaky, cheeky, and risky. Let's start with the sneaky. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. 
Wow. The Greek crypto or encrypto here suggests that the woman hid the yeast. She snuck it in to a huge batch of flour. Three measures, about two gallons or about 50 pounds of it. Enough to make 11 loaves. Her little yeast got worked into this huge batch and transformed it. Talk about subversion. In a tradition in which unleavened bread is central to religious practice, Jesus is valuing a small act that radically transforms the bread. With Matthew's primarily Jewish audience, this analogy would resonate instantly. They get it. But please do not miss the political allegory here. The yeast or the mustard seed. It reminds me of the song we just sang a minute ago. Also solo le pido a Dios, but Bob Marley's small acts. If you are a big tree, Marley says to the establishment, we are a small axe, sharp and ready to cut you down. Think about the Jesus movement, a bunch of peasants roving the countryside of Roman-occupied Palestine. This little group would eventually outgrow both its native country and the very empire that tried to suppress it. When Jesus asks, have you understood all this? To us, it sounds ridiculous. No. No, we have not understood all this. No. But Jesus spoke in such a way that the people of his time understood. These parables made sense to them because they were based on daily life. Cooking. Plants that grow all over the countryside. Fishing. These are everyday things. They get it. You know what was not part of everyday life for them? Pearls and treasure. The crowds around Jesus in the countryside of Galilee were, by and large, poor. When Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who found a great pearl or a hidden treasure, the people are riveted. This is fantasy. They don't think, wow, that's weird that the merchant and the other guy get so excited and they give up everything they have. They understand. They hear the potential of liberation from oppressive poverty. Those of us who have much think that wasn't the best move. Selling everything they had for a pearl or buried treasure but if you don't have much to begin with, it makes sense. Think about the lottery here. All the people that go in. I worked at a gas station for a while, and uh, and all the people that would come in. It, it was not, you know, the, your stable person that came in to buy a lottery ticket. I'm also thinking. Have, have some of you been reading the book Hillbilly Elegy that's been going around? thinking of, there's a, there's a portion in that book uh, in which 
um, the main character has, is in the Marines and he's just gotten his sig- first significant paycheck. And he want, he's ready to go out and go buy a car. And not, he's not going to just go out and buy a car. He's like, he would go to the dealership and buy like a Beamer. That's what he was going to do. Fortunately, he had someone come with him because he was raised in poverty to help him not spend all his money at once. That's the kind of behavior we're talking about here. This behavior is risky. It's not the safe road. This is the guy who goes to Vegas, finds a roulette table, and puts all his money on one number. All in. It's not the way we do things. It's beyond risky. It's stupid. But it is committed. All in. Lest we forget, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. These parables are not describing the way good investors survive or how to live a healthy life. They tell us about God. They tell us about God's commitment, about God's excitement. They tell us the lengths to which God goes. If we are a lost coin, a lost sheep, a pearl, a buried treasure, or a big old lump of flour... God is working to transform us and draw us in. God is not casually pursuing us. God is all in. And if we are going to participate in building God's kingdom, if we are going to follow Jesus, if we are going to love God and neighbor, this is how we do it. All in. We take out all the treasure, the old and the new, old school reverence for God, and new school liberation theology, feminism, anti-imperialism, nonviolence, gender neutral language, the divine, maybe some new music, maybe some ancient stories. We take them all out like the scribes, mix them together, and love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbors as yourself. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of heaven. It's not some relaxing place where we lounge around on clouds. It is love at work in the world, working to heal the planet so that it might flourish despite insurmountable odds against it. It's sad to me to think how heaven is depicted in church or in popular culture, like this emphasis on churchy piety or tacit obedience. The kingdom of heaven is attractive. It draws us in and makes us want to give up everything, to change what, who and what we have been because we want to be something better, to be part of something greater. Perhaps the best way to describe that is to say that the kingdom of heaven is like falling in love. I'm thinking of that moment toward the end of when Harry met Sally, when Harry has the epiphany. You guys know this, probably. The woman who has been his friend for decades, is the love of, the li- of his life. He realizes it, and the moment he realizes this, 
Harry runs through New York City on New Year's Eve to find Sally at a black tie event. Harry is in jeans and a t-shirt and tennis shoes, but he doesn't care. He seeks out Sally, with whom he has been fighting for weeks, and says, urgently, I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Urgent, revelatory, transformative. When you realize you are in love, you move everything out of the way. Falling in love, I don't know if you've seen this in some of your friends or crazy people that you know, but it can, falling in love can totally transform your entire life. I've seen my friends sell everything they have, leave successful careers, get sober, learn foreign languages, and move across the planet to be with the one they love. See some smiles. <laughs> like Harry and Sally, Mary Beth and I knew each other for years before we went off the deep end. But there was a huge shift when we finally gave in to the love that had always been there. I got a job. What? <laughs> Bought a car, got an apartment. I was riding, riding around the country on a bicycle at the time. Um, she sold her house in Philly, packed up her dog and everything she owned, and moved to Los Angeles. And within a month of that move, we were engaged. All in. Not because some social norms said it might be good. The world says fools rush in, and usually that's right. But sometimes we have to risk. We have to risk to love God and neighbor. We have to risk to save the nine people who died in the back of a semi-truck near San Antonio as they were smuggled across the border this week. We have to risk to save the coral reefs from massive bleaching that threatens to kill all of the ocean's coral in the next 30 years. The kingdom requires commitment, urgency, risk. If we are to love God and neighbor, we need the wisdom of Solomon that we read about today and the passion of the yeast that the woman snuck into the flower. Like the yeast, like the mustard seed, we are small. But as groundbreaking feminist and Episcopalian Margaret Mead said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Amen.